I felt like I was missing a piece of knowledge that everyone else must have had that I didn't have, or I would be discovered any moment as like not being legitimate at what I do. Welcome to The Art of Speaking Up, a podcast that empowers professional women to rise. I'm your host, Jessica Guzik. And in this show, I take you undercover into the stories and lessons that I learned, sometimes the hard way, throughout my career. I also talk with working women, leaders, and coaches to show you that no matter what your struggle is and no matter what your career goals are, you already have all the talent that you need to succeed. Welcome to episode three. You are about to hear a very interesting, very helpful, and very honest conversation with Caitlin Maud, who works in the ad industry and who opened up to me about what it was like to experience something that I think many of us experience, which is asking ourselves, do I belong? Am I good enough? Am I supposed to be here? Or did I somehow sneak in? And did I somehow make the cut when I wasn't supposed to? And at any moment, I'm going to be found out and kicked out and exiled. And so I better make sure that I don't take too many risks because I definitely don't want that to happen. She so eloquently walks through her experience of that and what that was like. And we have an amazing conversation around imposter syndrome. And more importantly, she gives tons of helpful advice on how to work through that and build up your confidence and get more comfortable in the workplace and learn how to advocate for yourself and for your ideas and to strengthen your ability to speak up and to perform your job with ease. I loved this conversation. There are so many interesting nuggets in it. And Caitlin was so confident and well-spoken and powerful I can't really do it justice. You just have to hear her to understand what I'm saying. So I'm going to get straight into it and I'll catch you on the other side. So thanks for having me first and foremost. Um, I'm Caitlin. As you know, I'm a brand strategist. So I've been working in the advertising industry for about 10 years um, and beyond just agencies. I've been doing consulting and freelance work. Um, what brand strategy is, is I do things like brand positioning I do trend research, so I look at cultural and consumer trends and buying patterns and motivators. I facilitate workshops with clients, um, whether they're brands or other agencies that I'm working with. And then what we're ultimately trying to do as brand strategists is make sure that things like advertising campaigns or new product launches are particularly effective and that they have a desired outcome, whether that's um, selling more of a particular thing. It's getting a message about a product out there or making something like a website more usable for people so that they can better navigate and do the things that they need to do on it. I have kind of a non-traditional background. So I think this will come up a lot in our conversation. So it's kind of important to give that that background is that I went to art school. I didn't go to business school. Um, I studied design undergrad and I saw advertising as a way that I could have a real job or like a career when I graduated and also be creative. And I think that while it's been that, it's been really interesting to come in from that background versus the background of a lot of my peers, which are coming from more like MBA programs. And that can come with baggage. So I 
I have a similar experience. I went to law school and then I went into a non-legal, very business-oriented job. And I know the insecurity and the mental baggage that that can bring. Totally. And it's when we talk about things like imposter syndrome or feeling like a fraud, everyone has, I think, their own version of why they feel that way. It's like, oh, well, I didn't grow up the way that all my peers grew up or, oh, I'm a woman and I'm surrounded by all men or my background is different. But for me, that was one of the areas that like now, 10 years later, I look back and like, oh, that was a source of like a lot of anxiety for me when I was first starting out in my careers that I didn't do things the same way that other people did them. Or I didn't, I, I felt like I was missing a piece of knowledge that everyone else must have had that I didn't have. Or I would be discovered any moment as like not being legitimate at what I do. I so strongly relate to that. And you're, you're so right. Everyone can find something. And I think also one thing that you've mentioned is it took you time to even realize that you were feeling that way. Like you had to like look back and then see it. Yeah, absolutely. So the business side of advertising was the hardest place for me to really find my footing and feel confident in. I was pretty confident that I was creative. I was, I have pink hair. Listeners can't see it, but I, (laughs) I look the part of a creative and it was navigating things like objective setting and using these terms that I felt like other people knew, but I didn't know. And and having to really play catch up on the business side of the work that made me feel like a real imposter. Um, but it was so other little things that I didn't expect to, like, like you said, really subtle things. I remember how excited I was in my first job that I was going to be getting a paycheck that looked the same every week. Because for so long, I worked in service industry jobs where my income really fluctuated in school. And I was like, wow, you know, I didn't negotiate off the bat. They're like, you're going to get $30,000 a year. And I was like, that's amazing. (laughs) I have a salary. Um, But looking back, things like that, I'm like, wow, why did I feel like that was so amazing? Like, why did I feel like I was so lucky to have a job? Um, How, where did that come from? How is that created? What type of culture did I exist in or people did I surround myself with that would have made me go in feeling so inferior that those things would be shocking to me? Or maybe it's universal. I don't know. Is that something you experienced when you first started off in your career? Yes. I felt like in a way I had won the lotto or I had chosen the right thing in a Russian roulette and things turned out well for me. I relate to that 100%. And I, I think it is universal I just think that we're not always talking about it and we don't always have the right language around it. But I think it's way more universal than we think it is. Most of the women that I'm talking to on this show have a very similar story around it. Yeah. And coming into strategy, like I said, from a somewhat non-traditional background, and I say that now and even now it still sounds dismissive because what I studied in school is strat- like is the tenant of creative strategy. I studied design thinking, human factors. Like I was I've always been into this, but so much of what made me really good is at being a strategist um, and a brand strategist in particular came very intuitively to me. Um I took the strengths finder quiz a few years mm. ago, which I highly recommend to anyone who's listening. We can put it in the show notes. Um, But I took the strengths finders quiz to identify areas where maybe I had particular innate strengths. 
And the number one was strategy, which I just thought was hilarious because I was like, oh, great. So like I've made a career accidentally doing this thing that came really intuitively to me. But I had this idea that like clients don't pay for intuition. So I need to overcompensate by um, really bolstering my knowledge and really like doing this certification or learning this thing so that I was more legitimate because I had an idea that like my intuition or my natural strengths alone weren't enough to be successful at what I do. It's so crazy because you look at yourself and you think, oh, I have this creative background. Therefore, in some place in my mind, I think I'm not good enough. And then I look at you and I think you're able to do both. And you have these super strong talents in the creative realm that most of the people who have that traditional, more strategy, business oriented background don't have. And mm. you can jump over into their side as well. And so I see that as a huge asset and you see it differently. And I've been through the same thought process too, where I'm like, ah, I'm a lawyer. I don't know how to do this business stuff. But then other people would look at me and say, oh my gosh, you went to law school. Like you can handle this rigorous analysis and all of these things. And it's, it's insane how a story can look so negative to us and other people can see it as an asset and, and we're completely blind to that. Yeah. And, and then we develop these really wild coping mechanisms. And I think that that's something if I can get across to the listeners that doesn't need to happen um, is these ways that we find to overcompensate. So when I was thinking about the conversation that we were going to be having and I was thinking about um, my background and my career over the past 10 years, I see how much I relied on things like my work ethic to somehow prove myself, to always be trying to show people that I really knew what I was doing. So I was always the last one in the office. I was always the one who did things like take notes, which is very, very subtle. But mm -hmm. if that, there are people, especially in the advertising world, where that is part of their job, that it is mm -hmm. their job as the project manager, producer, account manager in the room to take notes. And there was this funny thing that I felt like, oh, I have to show I'm doing something because being here and contributing to the conversation alone is not enough. My presence is not enough. I have to add value. And I think that's a message that we put on a lot of early career women that they have to find these ways to add value. And I think the way they might be adding value is just owning their knowledge, being confident, owning when they don't know the answer to something, um, being a facilitator of dialogue. There are many ways that they can add value that are really true to potentially their role um, that aren't so traditionally subservient. I completely agree. And I relate so strongly to the note-taking piece. For me, it was also a way of hiding. It was mm -hmm. also kind of a way to be in my note-taking cocoon and be like, oh, well, I can't participate because I need to focus on taking these incredible notes that probably aren't even necessarily needed in the situation. No. And I so strongly relate, and I think so many people will relate to what you said about having this feeling that the idea that you have or the thought process that's happening in your mind is somehow flawed and therefore needs to be concealed. Mm. Yeah. And I still see now when I look back just how I let dynamics play out differently earlier in my career than I do now. So I 
felt like I had to really earn this place at the table. And so part of that was often defaulting to other people who were louder and fought for ideas. So in the advertising industry, you're trying to get at the big idea for a campaign or the big idea for a website or a big message that the client can put out there. And I see now so many times where I'm like, I really wish I fought for that idea. Or in hindsight, that was the way we should have done it. That would have been most effective. Or I really should have advocated more for the consumer as the person who was owning the research side of that project. But I let people who are louder and more confident than me um, win, not that there's a winner or loser, but really own those conversations because I felt like I wanted to retain that seat that I had worked so hard for and that I was so lucky to be a part of those conversations. But if the work isn't effective, in the end, nobody really wins. And so there's not that I'm saying you should always be the one sticking up for your idea and fighting for your idea. But what I could have stand to learn earlier on is how to advocate for my ideas and when was the right time to do so so that my default wasn't to not do that. Yes. And I don't know if you feel this way, but when I look back on times when I kept things to myself and I didn't say what I was thinking and I kind of hid in the corner of the meeting room, proverbially, I it's not just that I didn't throw in the idea, but I miss out on the learning that happens when you become part of the dialogue and you hear people react to what you're saying and you become part of the process. And I had to go back and I feel like I had to relearn some of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there have been a lot of skills that I've had to relearn or that I'm constantly relearning. But I do wish earlier on in my career, again, now looking back on it for the sake of this conversation, there were so many times where I looked outside of my sk- myself for personal development. I looked at skills that I should be bringing to the table or credentials like we talked about earlier when I think I could have benefited from a lot of the personal development work that I'm doing now that I'm a little bit older. So things that could help me grow my confidence or things that could help me um, have better interpersonal skills. So things like sensitivity training and getting um, more aware on things like unconscious bias. There's so many resources now too that maybe didn't exist 10 years ago. But I think those things would have had much more of a return on an investment than some of the like digital tools I got certified to use early on in my career and some research methodologies that like I haven't even used since then. It's a tempting thing to do because it gives you more labels and more things to put around yourself and to make yourself feel more legitimate, even though you are legitimate. Right. It's not nece- like it's not necessary. You've already gotten in the door to a certain extent. Like if you're already sitting at the table, that's when you can have an opportunity to impress people through your presence, through your ideas, through um, being confident in how you speak. Like presentation skills is something I would tell everyone to go and work on. Like everyone can stand to benefit from joining their local Toastmasters chapter and learning how to really command the room when they speak. A hundred percent. The episode coming after this one is going to be all about that. Ah, love it. Perfect timing. One thing that might be helpful for people is you mentioned this process of figuring out how to advocate for yourself and which situations are okay and how do you navigate that when you think about 
corporate politics and all of the things that complicate it. Do you have any advice or any things that you learned along the way that might be helpful to someone who's figuring that out? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are ways in which you can do that very tactically. Um, there are ways that you can speak up, which is like the whole point of this podcast is, is learning how to start to speak up and advocate for yourself. But I think there are also more subtle dynamics that can exist that are worth um, examining as well. So there are tips and tricks you can find online, and I'll share some of my favorite ones for learning how to speak up. But there are, I, I would also encourage a practice of awareness and listening and um, trying to cultivate a sense of what the culture is where you're working. So a little background. Um, I, like I said, I recently left the advertising agency world to go back to consulting. And in that process, a male peer of mine from an ad agency referred me a freelance project, which was awesome. So grateful. Um, but I remember, this is only a few weeks ago. I remember just feeling like, oh, wow, like he must think I'm really good. Like he referred me this freelance project. So I must have finally earned his respect. And I took a minute to examine that. And I was like, that must mean I felt like I didn't have his respect before. And I've been working with and friends with this person for seven years. Like I've known this person since very early on in my career. And I never felt I had his respect until he actually sent a project my way. And I was like, how was it that I've been working and existing in this dynamic with someone I felt so inferior to and felt like I needed their validation so badly? So some of these dynamics get created without intention. Um, they just happen because of a lack of self-worth or lack of self-confidence or because of really, really subtle culturalized misogyny that may take some examining and unpacking and navigating and you may not, for me, I didn't even notice it in the moment until, you know, many, many years later where now I'm like, oh yeah, when I look back on when we worked together, he did always get picked for projects or like people did go to him first before they came to me, even though we were peers. Um, that's really interesting. It wasn't just the dynamic between he and I, but culturally I felt subservient or I felt like in a position of less power. So I would really encourage people to cultivate a practice of awareness. I just think so much of what I am working on now is cultivating a sense of like listening and awareness and really looking at my own behaviors and looking at my own reactions to things and just getting super curious. Like, why did that, that set me off? Why did I react that way? Why did I have that feeling when I left that room or that conversation? What about that was icky so that I can learn how to better operate with confidence in the world? There's a really great book that someone in HR at the agency I was just working at recommended to me. It's called Crucial Conversations. And it's all about taking initiative to participate in or lead um, challenging conversations with people. So we have got to get out of our comfort zone in examining ourselves and the role that we're playing in the dynamics in the workplace and at home and getting really, really curious about ourselves in the world. 
But I think there's also, like I said, there are these tactical things. And I think one of the things that you can do to start advocating for yourself is being willing to participate in and potentially lead challenging conversations with people. So the marks of a great boss are people that are willing to be honest, people that are willing to go to bat for people. So if you want to be one of those bosses one day, if you want to be the one who's leading the team, you have got to learn to give feedback. Um, That could be a great skill to start developing sooner rather than later. How to package feedback that is very clear to people, that is very actionable, that is honest, that is not sugarcoating things. Because how many of us have had managers that never did that for us? It's really important. And I find when you're giving straightforward feedback or you're giving feedback that you're afraid will make the person hate you for saying it, it ne- that never actually happens. As long as you deliver it respectfully and you know do it in a way that reflects your own self-awareness, it, it's usually very helpful for the person in my experience. Absolutely. There's, I, I really, really believe in creating um, emotional safety. So the, the idea of emotional safety is no matter your role within a team or your role within a friend group or, or whatever dynamic it is that you're participating in, helping people understand or making sure that they know that you are a safe person to talk to, that you will not take things you know personally, that you can receive feedback that you can listen and engage in dialogue, that you can be humble and apologize when you've wronged someone. But creating a sense of emotional safety within a team is key. Um, Google just did a study about two years ago, maybe three years ago, where they looked at what the most successful teams within Google were doing differently. And they looked at all sorts of factors. So were they big teams? Were they small teams? Did they have one leader? Did they have multiple leaders? There was not one single determining factor that could predict success among teams except for teams that felt like they had emotional safety within the team. And the way that they defined that was teams that had more interpersonal relationships with each other. So teams that were willing to have conversations that weren't just about what that deliverable would be on Friday, but were about things like um, what was going on in their personal lives and being supportive and sensitive to each other's needs outside of work as well. And that study was really influential in terms of how I looked to work within the teams that I was a part of and really like making sure people knew that I saw them for so much more than just that one thing they were going to do for me on a project that I see you as so much more than a copywriter. Like you're someone that can contribute from your experiences. You're someone that can um, be a great facilitator, like identifying people's strengths and, and telling them when you identify them in them is huge. I really want to look at that study. That sounds so oh, interesting. Put it in the show notes. Yeah, that one's really important. I think when people feel at ease and they feel like they can be themselves, I think that's where you can access, in my opinion, your strongest problem solving and all of your most robust strengths because anyone can kind of follow a formula. But to get into that state of mind where you're in the zone and you're figuring things out and moving things forward, for me, when I'm mentally like seizing up and locking up and and having that paralysis and I don't feel safe and I don't feel good, I cannot even come close to performing at that level. 
And listen, that stuff is a skill. That stuff takes work. So just as much as skills like negotiating or giving presentations are hugely important, there is a skill to developing um, like interpersonal relationships with people. There is a skill in practicing having difficult conversations. There is a skill in practicing empathy and honesty. And it can be as simple as challenging yourself for one day a week or one day a month to getting coffee with someone that you don't know as well on your team and getting to know them. I agree. And sometimes, you know, some people might not want to do that. If you're someone who's shy or that doesn't come natural to you, it might not be the thing that you're most excited to do. But those connections are ultimately, in my opinion, the things that end up moving you forward in your career more than any project you do. It's totally all it all comes down to people in the end of the day. Because something will come up for you eventually where you need to lean on your team. Um, I notice this in relationships as well. So I'm very independent and sometimes I have a hard time leaning on my partner. But what kind of a relationship is that if I do everything myself, if I don't give my partner the opportunity to support me back? Like how useful can he possibly feel if he can't be there for me. And so we need to do, we need to know and anticipate that people within our team are going to need us and that we're going to need them at some point too. So that building these relationships so that people empathize with you, that they know what you're capable of, that they have your back is crucial to growing within an organization or within a team. A hundred percent. And it can make such a big impact. If you're about to start a project with someone, instead of just setting up a meeting with them about the project, first, just get a coffee with them Mm -hmm. and then see how different it feels once you get started on the project. The tone and the way things go and the dynamics are going to feel completely different. Yeah. And listen, I'm, I mean, I'm totally with you. This is not always the most comfortable thing for me either. When I go through my list, I'm like, I have a two-year-old at home. I need to go to the gym today. Like, I don't want to do any air quote, extra work above and beyond. I'm giving you more than enough of myself every day, but it's an investment. You can start to look at cultivating these relationships and cultivating um, that type of an environment and culture within your team as an investment in the long-term health and success. And it's proven to be the way to success. And as you start to put yourself out there, it might feel like a time investment, but there's going to come a point in the future where someone or one of those people is going to see an opportunity or see a place to help you and jump in. And that's when you start to see the power of that interpersonal connection and what it can do for everyone. Yeah. And so much of the advice out there right now is like, there's someone you want to work with or someone you want to be like, like, ask them if you can pick their brain and take them out to coffee. I would encourage people to do that to the person sitting next to you. Like, yes, it's really great to reach out to people who you want to know more about and build connections outside of your organization that can um, help you grow long term. But don't you want to feel good every day too? Like, don't you want to feel like the projects you're working on are more fulfilling and successful. Like what about just asking someone else at the company out for coffee? Like let's not set the bar so very high when there are people whose relationships could benefit us every single day sitting right next to us. 
I agree. And as much as it's tempting to be very strategic and deliberate about it, it just it hasn't worked that way, in my opinion. It's it's too organic for that kind of like tactical calculated approach to work super well. Yeah. And I know um, I don't want to like jump too far ahead, but I know we had talked about one of the things we want to talk about is like advice and what advice is out there. And that's something that I've been really thinking about is I think so much of the advice we talk about is um, encouraging people to like reach out to someone that they want to get coffee with. But one of the things that I think we're missing are like all the steps before that, like how to craft an email to a really busy person. There's a whole art in science to reaching out to someone or to making an introduction between people that it took me years of working in an office environment and kind of reading up on things and just watching what other people did to learn. So rather than worrying about like, oh, I really want to send an email to Esther Perel because I love her work and I want to pick her (laughs) brain next time she's in New York, practice like really, really small scale. How can you connect to people in your life that you think really need to meet each other? Who's in your immediate network or your office that you can pick their brain that gives you that practice of making asks like this and learning how to get through to busy people. We're going to have to have a part two of this, not to put any pressure on you, but there's so much here. I hope you enjoyed the first chunk of my discussion with Caitlin. Caitlin opened up about her insecurities and I opened up about some of my insecurities and If you heard us and you related to our insecurities and kind of felt like you connected with what we were saying, what I want you to know is that me and Caitlin and you and every other woman out there, in my view, we are in this together. We all struggle and we have all questioned ourselves, right? Like even the most confident of us have done it at some point or another. And I think one of my big takeaways from this conversation is Connecting on the struggles is great because it normalizes it and it makes us feel like we're less alone and like this isn't the end of the world. But where I really like to focus, you know, once I've had that feeling of acknowledgement and once I kind of feel like, okay, where I'm at is okay, is to look ahead and see what's in front of me and see what's possible for me and for you and for all women out there. And I think you and me and Caitlin and most of us I would say that we probably haven't even scratched the surface of what our full potential is and what it is that we can do. And there's so much more ahead and those insecurities and the imposter syndrome and the questions and the fears. It's real. You know, we feel it and it's there and it's annoying and it gets in the way and it's uncomfortable. But ultimately, we get to decide where we're going and we get to decide how risk taking we want to be and what goals we want to go after. So, you know, we have insecurities, but I would say let's not be insecure about our insecurities. Let's just own them and not think that there's anything bad about it. And, you know, hopefully they'll get better over time. But I think the main thing is let's focus on what's ahead, which is what do we want to do and what do we want to achieve for ourselves and our careers and how are we going to get there? In the next episode, you'll hear part two of our discussion where Caitlin talks about working in the very male-dominated and sometimes challenging ad industry and what it is like to be a young woman working in the ad vertical, which you will hear from her story, is not always that different from 
some of the dynamics that you see on the show Mad Men. If it's a topic you're interested in, I definitely recommend tuning into the second part of our conversation. I hope you have an amazing day. If you love the show and you decide to give the show a rating, you will make my day very amazing because um, I get very excited about my ratings. And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure why I need them or how many I need or what they do. They do something in the iTunes store. I'm, I'm not totally sure, but they make me feel really good and they make me feel very happy. So feel free to leave one. I'm excited for you to hear the rest of my chat with Caitlin um, if you do decide to tune in and I'll catch you there. Have a good day. Bye. If you want to advance in your career, you have to be able to speak up with confidence and advocate for what it is you need. There's a word for this skill. It's called assertiveness, and many women find it very difficult to do. Luckily, it is totally possible to build confidence in your voice, and I wrote an ebook specifically to help you do that. It's called The Smart, Ambitious Woman's Guide to Assertiveness in the Workplace, and it will guide you through a series of simple steps that will help you speak up and be more assertive in a way that feels authentic to who you really are. To get your free copy, go to www.assertivenessebook.com or go to the free resources section at the bottom of the show notes where you will find the link. Remember, your voice is your key to success at work and you are empowered to decide how you want to use it.